It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host, a very special guest tonight, the author of Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal, Why the Church Should Be All Three. Uh, we have a president on the line with us here, and Gord, Dr. Gordon Smith is the president of Ambrose University. Welcome to the program. Thanks. A pleasure to be with you. Well, this book is interesting. A lot of pastors are thanking you for writing it because... Well, the church is very divided today. I mean, we have different denominations where it comes to baptism or it comes to the sacraments or maybe even being motivated by the Spirit. Sometimes we lose that. Where do we begin with your book? Oh, where to begin, I think, is um, uh, the rather pivotal piece is the assumption that the Lord and the source of grace for the church is Christ Jesus, the ascended Lord. So if the ascension is what d- defines us, shapes, and informs us, and if what we long for is the grace of Christ, the question is, how do we appropriate the grace of Christ to be all that we are called to be as the church? Okay, so translation here. Do we not look to heaven? <laughs> do we not look to the ascended Lord? Is that is that forgotten in the church? You mentioned so many good things in your book that I want to get to. Of course, I want you to answer that one. But such as even sermons today that you really hit me with this, that even in sermons, all they have is really just a bar stool and... Uh, that right away kind of got me, but are we not looking to heaven? My my sense is we're not. We don't have a sense of, or a sufficient sense of something that is absolutely pivotal, and that is that there are two spheres of reality: the reality in which we live, and the other reality, the one you've just referred to as heaven, and that we need to ask the question: How is the relationship between the two sustained, nurtured, so that we actually live with the full power that is available to us from, as you put it, heaven? And you bring such good examples into it, starting with the unity, uh, that we should all be one. And if there's power in that alone, isn't there, as far as what people will see Christ if we're all together in this? And uh, do you think the Lord would be disappointed with all the, I guess, schisms or schisms or however they say it, but uh, within the church? I think that in actual fact, we can speak about diversity as something that that enriches the life of the church and that Christ is present to the church in diverse ways. What becomes a problem is when that diversity becomes a source of division, or as you put it, schism. Um, So how do we find uh, unity with diversity? That, I think, is the key. And part of what I'm trying to do with this book is to suggest some of the ways in which we have viewed ourselves as polarized may be just a point of diversity rather than a point of division. You know, getting to the theology of this, why do we need to have all three? Well, I think um, I'll give two answers to that. The one answer is that maybe it's biblical. That is, maybe this is what Christ himself has said. This is how I am going to be present to the church, through the word, through the sacramental actions, and through the grace of the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, it's a matter of just saying, what, what is the act of obedience uh, to how Christ wants to be present to us? But I will often get the response is, but why all three? Aren't we just fine if we're evangelical? and we approach the word, why do we need to also be Pentecostal and sacramental? And I think what's emerging is a growing realization that for the church in a post-Christian, increasingly secularized society, we need to appropriate grace every which way it comes. And I see an emerging generation of young people who are saying, if there is grace in the word, I'm going to be there. And if there is grace at the table, I'm going to be there. And if there is grace in appropriating an immediate awareness of the Spirit, I'm going to be there, and I'm not going to just say, well, I'm evangelical, so I don't participate in the Lord's Supper, or I'm evangelical, therefore I don't kind of appropriate the immediacy of the Spirit. 
I think we have a generation of Christians who are saying, it's all three, and I want to find a way to live out my Christian life individually, but also the life of the church that appropriates all the grace of God that's available to us. Take us to the bar stool, Dr. Smith, if you would, because that got my attention. I, I usually think something is missing with that, kind of like maybe it works for James Taylor with a guitar in his hand or something like that. But, you know, the pastor, though, I mean, why is it important to have other, as you mentioned, maybe symbols or pictures or things that maybe heighten our worship? What happens when we have just a bar stool? Well, I do have a concern, and it's interesting that you reference it. I do have a concern if we lose a sense of the unique authority and power of the scriptures in the life of the church. So, I mean, I grew up within the evangelical, theological, and spiritual tradition, and maybe it was over the top uh, that the pastor of our church preached from a very large uh, pulpit, and we all knew we were this was sermon time, and there was no avoiding the, um, the sense of weight and occasion as the word was open and as the word was read and then proclaimed. And I have a concern that in kind of the informality chattiness as a way to kind of make the Word of God accessible to us, we may lose something of its uh, unique authority in the life of the church. And in losing that, I think um, uh, um, we lose the uh, a sense of its power. Um, so I, um, and I, I mean, I preach in churches all the time that don't have a pulpit, let alone even a podium. And I will often realize, I'll just ask, could I at least have a music stand? But um, <laughs> Please, that's, that's uh, the least. <laughs> Somebody come that's in. That's <laughs> the least, you know, something, uh, something that can actually symbolize. But, but maybe that's the sacramental impact that is actually saying symbols matter. Uh, forms and structures matter. But I, I have a concern that kind of the let's just chat about the word loses a sense of its unique authority and its immediacy in the life of the Christian and the life of the church. So that thus saith the Lord is lost, perhaps, even. And, yeah, and precisely. And I was asking my wife just the other day, I said, what happened to the Billy Grahams where, you know, the cross was front and center, and how sad that you don't see that anymore, and why? Well, um, I mean, in some degrees, it's lost because we have worked very, very hard at making uh, the faith and the gospel accessible. Um and I'll grant, um, Billy Graham was of an era. Uh, that's fine. That that fit for the 60s and 70s and, per- and, and perhaps even into the 80s. I understand that there aren't going to be these kind of really prominent pulpits anymore, but I'm not sure that um, they are essential if a congregation of two or 300 believers has somebody whose calling is to, be, uh, is to open the Word and present the Word week in and week out. And to trust the Word, to do what only the Word can do, and what the Spirit does through the Word uh, in the course of the lives of a congregation. And I think we've become impatient. Um, the deep work of the Word of God in our lives happens incrementally, gradual incrementalism. But we've become impatient. We want this thing, we want, we like immediate feet, immediate kind of gratification, that's perhaps mm-hmm. a strong word. But we want an immediacy, and the Word just doesn't do that. It doesn't work that way. It works slowly, gradually, deeply in our you know, even in our subconscious. And I think uh, pastors have lost uh, the the commitment to preach in season and out of season, and congregational members are looking for a more kind of immediate um, uh, sensation that comes with a more charismatic or entertaining speaker. Now, I'm not saying we should not engage heart and mind. Of course we should. I use humor a lot in my speaking, but the humor is meant to um, to build trust, to build rapport, uh, to open up avenues of understanding, but um, uh, I'm not there to entertain, uh, and I have mm. little patience. There's, there's, another, 
If I want entertainment, I don't go to church on Sunday. I go to church on Sunday because I need to meet Jesus. And one of the most powerful ways in which Jesus is present to me is through the word. So I just I I plead with preachers, show me Jesus. Uh, That is my greatest need on any given Sunday. Show me Jesus. And I'm suggesting, at least in preaching, that that Jesus is present to us through the word. Well, we're talking about church formation, evangelism, the sacraments and also, you know, Pentecostal. And so when we go to the Pentecostal part, do things sometimes get out of tilt here? Because if you don't receive the second blessing and it's the uh, assembly of God type of thing. And why why do we lean so hard instead of having that balance? We, really, what, is, what you're trying to do is bring balance back to the church. Well, in many respects, I am. Uh, I think sometimes we, um, we, we reject the Pentecostal or the the spirit um, the spirit side of this of this triad or of this equation because we are either fearful of what's happening to us emotionally and I'm suggesting if God does not engage us with head and heart there is no transformation but there's just no avoiding an immediacy of the spirit in the life of the church and I think we need to develop the capacity to be attentive but it needs to be attentive with discernment and when uh, those of us who do not come from a Pentecostal tradition, feel that uh, discernment is lacking, um, as Divi Boone was wanted to say, if it feels good, it's got to be right, and I want to say no. Wow. Debbie, it may not be right. <laughs> I didn't know she said um, that. There's a lot of things that get attributed to the Spirit that are not of God, so we need to be discerning. And the most fundamental uh, working principle, and that's why I begin in this book with the Christ, and with Christ and the Ascension is that the Spirit is about drawing us into the presence of the risen and ascended Mm. Christ. That becomes the fundamental point of discernment. So we are not Spirit-focused, we are Christ-focused. And when we are Spirit-focused, when it's kind of a pneumocentrism rather than a Christocentrism, but when we are Spirit-focused, something is askew. Mm -hmm. But I want to say the same thing happens with the Word. The Word itself, when we become bibliocentered, ironically, the Word becomes not transformative, but frankly deadly the spirit the word is a means by which we encounter the risen and ascended christ and so always keeping that is our reference with word with the table and with the and with the experience we have of the spirit uh provides that essential anchor and compass yeah i could hear you on that because you know sometimes i go to a baptist church because you want good teaching and they're known for good teaching but sometimes they could be dead and then you can go to a Pentecostal church, and it's spirit-filled and everything. You don't hear the Word of God sometimes. So it gets kind of funny where sometimes if you're a Pentecostal, you want to be led by the Spirit and have, um, I don't know what they call fresh revelation or whatever it is, but it's kind of predictable to read the Word of God. I don't know. How, how do we get there? Whoa, how do we get there? Um, well, you do. Um, we do have... You, you, you do have preachers and we do have colleagues and leaders in the church who are, um, who are individuals who are un- undoubtedly filled with the Spirit mm-hmm. and who in their, in their weekly and daily practice of giving leadership to the church uh, live and move and have their being as individuals for, of whom it can be said they are walking in the Spirit. They have a deep love of the Word and know how to communicate that Word. And they don't shy away from the sacramental actions of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so they have chosen not to, to polarize. But uh, I think of, you know, I have a colleague, uh, he's retiring now, Daryl Johnson, um, Presbyterian Church USA, and then became part of the K-12 
Canadian Baptist of Western Canada when he moved to Canada. Um, and he's quintessentially a preacher with a deep appreciation of word and table. And he's a man who lives in the fullness of the Spirit. And it would be, it would be kind of strange to say, um, uh, w w what do you lean into more, Daryl? Do you lean into more of the word or the Spirit? And, of course, it's a false question. Yes. And uh, you're also the professor of systematic and spiritual theology. Is that right? That's correct. So what's the biggest challenge for you with all this when it comes to seminary students? Is everyone in tune, all the professors, all the students, or do we have different backgrounds and different ways of, of thinking about uh, theology? And When I teach, there's no doubt. When I teach, I want, I want to see where students begin. That is, if they have grown up Pentecostal, if they've grown up Baptist, if they've grown up Anglican, I'd like them to come to an appreciation of their own theological and spiritual heritage. Sometimes they have uh, rejected it, and they've become Baptist because they've rejected Pentecostal, or vice versa. Hmm. But I think one of the most crucial things is to appreciate the tradition or the, um, uh, the, the, the orientation in which one was raised, but then realize that perhaps um, it, was not the, it was not the whole of the truth or all the ways in which God might be present to the church. And I, um, I teach a course called The Meaning of the Sacraments, and um, uh, the majority, some students are in the class come from sacramental traditions, Anglican or Episcopalian, but the majority of the students come from evangelical and Pentecostal uh, traditions. And what is really intriguing to me is to see how, um, at first, they are very ambivalent because they've been raised on the assumption that the sacraments are empty rites or that somehow they're a threat to the word or they're a threat to the immediacy of the spirit in the life of the church, and they say, we want to be spirit people, not ritual people. But as you begin to speak about it, you realize that rituals and symbols uh, matter to them, and that when they can appreciate sacrament as informed by the word and animated by the spirit, then uh, that physicality is something that they don't reject, but actually realize is essential. Or as my son is wont to put, his generation, he's late 30s, his generation is inclined to say, if it doesn't happen in the body, it doesn't happen. Hmm. And I, I'm, I'm just very heartened by these young people, um, and by young I mean in their 30s, who are um, refusing to kind of polarize in ways that my generation was inclined to, uh, to divide. It's so interesting, though, because I know that people have a certain sense of what they want out of church, whether it's the music or the preaching and things like that, and you can never seem to have it all. I've been to a lot of different churches, and sometimes you wish you can quiz and earn it all, but I mean, I guess that's what makes it somewhat interesting all, all in all. But So the main thing that you'd like to cover or tell the church, it would be what in reading your book? Well, um, if I can say two things. One is, can we recover the centrality of the ascension? That is that Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father and is very present to the church um, to, to recover a sense of the dynamic of the ascension in the life of the church. And so that means reading the book of Hebrews, for example, because that's so central to the book of Hebrews um, would be an example. And some people have said we neglect the ascension because we neglect the book of Hebrews, which is an interesting observation. And then secondly, to ask the question, how is the risen and ascended Christ present to his church? sustaining the church, gracing the church, feeding the church, and empowering the church. And if we can address, if we can respond well to those two questions, I think I've been, um, I've been somewhat at least successful with this book. You get any pushback from people where they say, well, that's a good attempt to try to find balance within the church, but, you know, let us do our thing. Or, do, I mean, do people get in the church kind of head set or 
stubborn about the oh, way they do that. things. And no, how, how different? Like, <laughs> stubborn's a strong word. Um, I think I think some people say, well, you know, there's just there's an ambivalence. If they're evangelical, there's an ambivalence about the sacraments and the immediacy of the Spirit. So um, I understand that ambivalence. Uh, one point one point of pushback I've gotten is from those within the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition mm. who have said, Gordon, shouldn't there be four? Uh, word, sacrament, spirit, and community. And I've had good exchanges with people out of the Anabaptist Mennonite groups to say, I want to suggest word, sacrament, and spirit are all housed within uh, the community of faith. The community itself is not a fourth dimension or a fourth means of grace. It's only a means of grace as word and sacrament and spirit are housed within them. So that's been a very, for me, interesting exchange. But uh, most of my... Most of my um, Reflections and conversations on this topic have come from people in their 30s and 40s who have said, yes, uh, Gordon, thank you for put, giving words to what I've intuitively have felt. And uh, that, for me, is very encouraging. Uh, there's a whole church planting network based out of um, uh, Long Beach in California who have said, you know, we've been doing this kind of on the slot. We've been kind of celebrating the Lord's Supper week. We've been uh, – our, our worship has been characterized by – uh, a dynamic spirit, and our, our our weekly worship includes opening the text and preaching the text like we've always evangelicals. And so we've kind of been doing this. And we started celebrating the Lord's Supper weekly, but our denomination typically doesn't. And now what my book has done is, I'm, uh, oh, yeah, it makes sense uh, why we have done this intuitively, but now we've got somebody that's given us language by which we do it. And here's the reason why I think this book is important, okay? So we're in a church, and all of a sudden someone is baptizing, and you hear a couple sounds. One, and and maybe two people clap, and I'm thinking, well, this is, you know, I was just reading how in heaven, one person, one sinner comes to repentance, and there's rejoicing in heaven, and the angels, everyone. And why don't we get excited about that? I mean, what can we do when it comes to baptism, which you mentioned is so important? Uh, have we lost the importance of that? Do we not understand that we shouldn't be yawning? Well, I think, um, without doubt, teaching is a huge component. So I think uh, there's no doubt um, that not enough attention is given to, let's just take baptism, because you've raised it, what does baptism mean? Um, uh, what is what is its what is its content? Uh, so in the same way that we might get we might get excited at a wedding and be deeply moved by this couple that are getting married, and what the person presiding does is tell us this is what this means. Yes. This is what this couple is doing, and we say, "Whoa, this is big stuff." Mm. And I think the same thing should be happening every time we have a baptismal service. Let's have a brief, you know, kind of survey. Of a summary of what it is this rite means, what it signals in the lives of these women and men who are choosing to um, to to be baptized, and 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 locate it. That is, I rather than just kind of tagging it on as part of another service, make it indeed a central part of the life of the church. And I um, I have been part of baptismal services in the last two or three years that have been deeply um, generative or animated events in which, indeed, there was a laying on of hands that those who were baptized would receive the gift of the Spirit. The sermon beforehand, in one case, it was a sermon that I gave, talked about the meaning of baptism, why this is so significant in our lives, talked about it autobiographically. So it's meaning, we're not just observing, we're participating. Um, and then also, when a person baptized, 
they are, in a very real sense, being received into the community of faith. It's, a, it's an initiation into the life of Christ and into the life of the church. And so after a person is baptized, we, are, we should be giving them, to use ancient language, the holy kiss or the holy handshake or the holy embrace. That is, we are participants in this event. Uh, I hope that at least, I mean, I think you raised a fair point, but I hope that that would renew the practice in the life of the church. And, and um, rather than just being observers, we are participants, even if we've already been baptized. Yeah, because it gets sad a little bit when you hear two claps in the back and maybe a yawn. And this is this is big stuff, you know, the baptism. It's big stuff. It it's really is. Yep. And yep. you bring up a good point, too, that maybe, just maybe, they're dumbing it down. Can I say that in the church? Because if we had a little bit more background, a little bit more of these theological foundations, then perhaps that we would... And also, you know, it, sometimes it could be a 20-minute sermon, and that's it. And you, you're a professor. You don't keep your students there for 20 minutes. They have to really have some endurance when it comes to listening and, and uh, digesting the material. Do we need to make the services longer? Well, not necessarily. Now, that one of the challenges we have is that attention spans aren't what they used to be. So part of being involved, in, part of the digital age is the challenge of attention spans. But, I mean, a lot can be said in 20 minutes. Um, uh, my, my typical preaching in, in church, and I preach probably two or three times a month in different churches in my current role, my sermons are 20 to 25 minutes, and I, um, I think a lot can happen there. Um, my, uh, I don't think I dumb it down, but I do believe that as a rule we can only hear one thing at a time and appropriate it. So it isn't a mini lecture, and I, there is a big difference between what I do in the classroom when I'm lecturing and what I do on Sunday morning. But I do think it should have substance. It should be engaging. I'm not saying it should be a mini lecture. It needs to be accessible. But there's no reason why it can't have substance. Yeah. I mean, you want us to learn from other traditions, obviously. Yeah, we can, yes, yes. And that's important. So can that be a place where we can start? I mean, uh, um, learning about our other, well, not our other brothers and sisters, but, you know, and the denomination down the road. Yeah, but yeah. So what's the point of learning from these other traditions? Well, because in some form or another, wisdom uh, has been, that's what I speak about earlier as we were chatting about diversity. Could it be that one of the reasons why we need to be talking to the Presbyterians down the street or the Baptists down the street or the Christians is because God has chosen to show them something that they now have wisdom to give to us as well. And I want to just suggest that uh, there's so much learning that we can do from other Christians that will open our eyes in a ways that the Lord is saying to us, there's something I want you to learn, but you're going to learn it from another Christian. Hmm. And that your own kind of Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, whatever your tradition might be, may not have all of the truth. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying there's some significant learning that can happen when you sit down for coffee with somebody from another uh, theological and spiritual tradition. And they have experienced the grace of God in diverse ways that may be uh, deeply encouraging. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I mean, we'll cover that too. Do we have a meal? Would that change it? Or are we getting enough with just the wafer, the cracker, and and the juice? And do we do it, um, I don't know, once a month? And sometimes it seems so long, or, or do we do it? How, how do, does that build up the church? No, very important question. I, I think it's important that it remain a symbol. So one of the main points I make in the chapter on the sacramental in this book is I, 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 take, the, I take the approach that's called... Uh, uh, a symbolic approach to the meal. So I say it's not just a symbol. Of course it's a symbol, but don't use the word just with it. Uh, the, the, the ring on the fourth finger of my left hand is a symbol. 
But the last thing I'm going to do is tell my wife it's just a symbol. <laughs> uh, it's a very powerful symbol of the most fundamental relationship in my life. Mm-hmm. Baptism is a symbol. What is, symbols are a powerful means by which we appropriate another reality. So we enter into that other reality through, uh, through the symbol. And the Christ has mandated two symbols, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are hugely significant to us. And there's a whole range of symbolic actions that shape our common lives. But then asking the question, um, if this, therefore, oh, let me just make the point there. Therefore, it's no, it's not going to be a regular meal. We have regular meals all the time. And I'm a big believer in the potluck supper at the local church. Yes. Oh, big deal. Yes. But, but the Lord's Supper remains a symbolic meal so that there's no doubt that what's happening here is a spiritual nourishment rather than a physical nourishment. There's no doubt that what we're doing here is encountering Christ. Um, and so, um, Yes, it remains a wafer and a, and a sip of a cup, but in my experience, the celebration of the Lord's Supper of the Eucharist is, um, has, has deep value, deeply formative value in my life. But much like the Word, it does, its impact is not immediate. Its impact is accumulative over time. And I, I suggest that the weight of evidence in the New Testament is um, that they celebrated the Lord's Supper every time they gathered and that the weight of evidence from the Reformation and from John Wesley. So Calvin, Luther, Wesley, all of them believed in weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. Wesley went further. He celebrated the Lord's Supper twice a week in his life, every Sunday and every Thursday, because Anglican churches in England at that time always had a noon hour service on Thursday. So I think the weight of our tradition suggests this is not foreign to us or alien to us uh, to celebrate more frequently. But in some of our some of our churches, at least within my own denomination, there's a resistance because we've always done it this way. We've always celebrated the Lord's Supper once a month on the first Sunday of the month. But in actual fact, there's no theological reason for doing so. The, the most uh, the most obvious theological kind of um, grounding for this practice would suggest we would do it more frequently. And going back to my earlier comments, I think in a post-Christian secular society, it's imperative that we appropriate grace wherever it's coming from. And for young people who are really eager to appropriate the grace of God in their bodies, physical, tangible acts like baptism and the Lord's Supper are simply imperative. Yeah, I mean, that's the hard part is the crossover where everything's changing in society, I guess. You mentioned about Billy Graham, and that was an error uh, back then. But um, And how to fit all this in, evangelical, sacramental, and Pentecostal, why the church should be all three. So people can get your book, and if they get your book, you know, what are they going to do or ever get any comments that I implemented this, that, and the other thing, and, and something happened in my church? Well, no, not yet, but maybe that's because the book's relatively <laughs> new. Now, uh, I, as I said, so far the response has been, we've already begun moving in this direction, and this provides us with a, a guideline, or you might say a directive. Um, so for me, I think that's been so far the most common response. And there's no doubt about it. I am not unique on this point. Uh, you have evangelical Anglic- uh, Episcopalians or Anglicans in the U.S. I'm speaking at a diocese of the uh, Anglican Church of North America in Virginia. And the bishop, Bishop Steve, has written to me already saying, by the way, your new book, we're already doing it. We already feel like we're there. And I'm, I'm delighted um, to say this is not some strange agenda that I'm creating. I think there's a growing recognition in the church that some of the points at which we've been dividing may not be points of division, but maybe points in which we need to recover the interplay between word and sacrament, 
word and spirit and so on. So where do we draw the line where they say an era? I said era, but that's my you know Long Island thing. So an era like uh, Billy Graham, how do we know it's an era? Well, maybe maybe we've gotten cold to evangelism, or maybe there's not enough of it. I mean, how could that gift suddenly die like that? How do we judge which one stays and which one goes? Well, we go back to the New Testament. So I am suggesting, and the main point I'm making, Evangelical Sacramental Pentecostal, is that the Gospel of John, the Book of Luke, the Book of Acts, uh, communicate that these are the means of grace to the Church. So um, these are not um, uh, large campaign evangelism may have happened on the day of Pentecost, but it doesn't seem to have been the norm. So I don't think that's been prescribed, whereas I think word, sacrament, and spirit are prescribed by the New Testament. Secondly, when I say of an era, I think um, uh, I think oftentimes uh, God works in the life of the church and in the, in the life of the world through different wineskins. And I'm speaking of it more as a wineskin. I'm suggesting that in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, large crusade evangelism May have had may, uh, was without doubt effective an effective means to engage us, our society. I am not convinced that now that's the most effective way by which um, people are going to hear the gospel and respond to it. So another, you know, I, I've written two books on the whole subject of conversion, and I'm uh, I, I make the case in those books that the most powerful agent for evangelism is actually the church community as a whole, uh, not so much public evangelists. As the, as, as the Christian community located within a neighborhood that is living out the gospel. But you don't see that, you don't see that a lot today. <laughs> well, maybe not as much as you and I would like, fair <laughs> enough. But the majority of conversions that I read now, so I read about, I don't know, um, somewhere between 50 and 100 conversion narratives every year. So I'm kind of a, a, a conversion narrative junkie. <laughs> uh, the vast majority of these conversion narratives, um, and I read, I read them from Europe, I read them from North America, but also uh, a couple of years ago was reading comparing conversion narratives from Pakistan and um, and Turkey, uh, Muslim conversions and so on to Christian faith. What the vast majority of them, people become part of the church and is becoming part of the church, encounter Christ who's being worshipped in that church, and encounter the love of Christ that is communicated through the hospitality of those people. That is in contrast to Billy Graham era where people became Christians and then joined the church, there's a sense in which now the Spirit seems to be uh, reversing that. People are actually coming to church, becoming part of the church, and over time recognizing the deep, uh, the deep power of the gospel and recognizing the love of Christ that is being communicated through the members of that church. And I, um, I, think, I, don't, I don't think that's a problem, that is, that there's a change of an era. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm, maybe part of it is personal, I'm just not taken with large arenas filled uh, filled with 20,000 people listening to uh, an evangelist, I see deep power in faith communities living out the gospel in word and deed being the means by which women and men come to faith in Christ. All right, so if we don't utilize or implement some of the principles in your book, what's going to happen to the church? I mean, where do you think the church is headed if we don't have that type of balance that you're talking about, evangelical, sacramental, and Pentecostal? Well, I think, um, I mean, I... Um, it may not be, it may, it may not be a shared assumption with your hearers, but my assumption is that we are moving into an increasingly post-Christian and secular age, and if we're going to be a minority presence in our culture, uh, the full strength of the gospel needs to be lived out in the church. Hmm. So uh, I would say, why would we not? And I and I, I realize that some 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 church communities may choose not to, but it's, I think it's to their loss.
could you pray with us and about really the state of the church? And, and we sure appreciate you being on the program. Let's pray. God of all grace, uh, we celebrate the ways in which uh, your, your Son, our Lord and Savior, is present to the life of the church. We long in the language of Ephesians to grow up into him who is our head. We long to, in the, in the words of John chapter 15, we long to abide in Christ as Christ abides in us. Grant us, I pray, the capacity to see, understand, and live in this reality. And I pray for each of our hearers um, uh, on this, uh, through this radio program that they would understand both for themselves personally and in the ways in which they can be of influence in their own churches, um, how, how we can begin to grow more deeply into an appreciation of the grace of Christ in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We appreciate being on the program, Mr. President. It's not just phone calls and, and meetings. I'm sure you're you're doing <laughs> you're doing your thing, uh, spreading the gospel. And um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael.